Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good. A couple people say, yeah, all right, well, good. Praise. Yeah, Lou's all ready to go. Lou's all ready to go. Well, I thought maybe the rain would probably help the humidity. It just made it worse. Um, but for those that like that, uh, you got what you want. Well, we're in the book of Malachi. If you are that are visiting, we're so glad you're here this morning. We are starting a sermon series uh, through the book of Malachi for the next three weeks. Uh, last week, we're just going to just recap here so those that are visiting will kind of be on board with what we're doing and you can see where we have been. The book of Malachi is a minor prophet, a minor prophet. There's a major in there, minor prophets. And the basis of why you become a major or minor is just the length of the book. The book of Malachi, there are eight statements that God proposes to Israel. Israel responds, and then God concludes. And about 55, 55 words, statements in, in Malachi, majority of the book of Malachi is by God. 55 verses, I was wanted to say, 55 verses in the book of Malachi, 46 of them, God is speaking. The nation was not giving their best, as we learned last week. The priests, were, the priests were corrupt. They were marrying, being seduced by foreign women. Israel was pathetic and morally lazy. So we've seen that they were working through their ministry last week. What they were doing for ministry for God, and it was not something that they should brag about. We see in our text in Malachi, one, God was burdened for their heart and what was going on in their life. The key verse was Malachi 1.8. You'll see it on the screen in front of you. It says this, When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept that or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Bottom line, the nation of Israel was offering their seconds and their thirds. They were not offering God their best. There's two words that we looked at last week to remember for application. One was remember. We looked at the word Remember. Malachi 1, God is saying, Israel, I have loved you. And Israel, of course, answered, well, how have you loved us? Well, God gives this, this example of Esau and Jacob of a time in history where he showed them he loved them. Remember, and for us that are Christians here in the 21st century, do you remember the day Christ loved you and you trusted him as your Savior? Remember that day. Remember that when we get down and out, we think we don't, God doesn't love us. Remember the cross. Remember the sacrifice that was made for him. The second word was evaluate. We see in Malachi chapter 2 that God wanted the priests particularly, but also the nation, to evaluate what they were doing and why they were doing it. You see, they were offering these sacrifices. They were apathetic. They didn't care about the heart of God, and they were doing what they wanted to do. And we asked for us to take example in our life. Why do you do what you do for God? Why, in areas of ministry, why are you doing these things? Why are you performing these acts of ministry? Is it just to get a pat on the back from the pastors? Is it get, just to get accolades from people at church? Or is it truly because you truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so that's what we, we concluded last week with that idea, that application. So, so why do we do what we do? The nation of Israel, we can take example from. 
We cl- concluded at 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That great verse that Paul encouraged the Christians there in Corinth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding, we found out, was always going above and beyond for God. Do we always go above and beyond in the things of God? Or do we just kind of, by the end of the day, all right, this is what I have left, God, so here's what I'm going to give you. You get to the end of your bank account, yeah, God, God, I got five bucks left, here you go. And next week we're going to talk a little bit about our giving, our tithing to God. So this week, Malachi 2 brings us to their marriages. Last week we talked about their ministry. Now we're going to see what they were doing in the area of their marriages. So let's begin reading Malachi chapter 2, verses 10. We're going to read through verse 17. Malachi, yes. Is that you, God? It's like... Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. He's rehashing Malachi 1. This is what is going on. This is what your offering means to me. This is what you're doing. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and his wife and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says to the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and do not be faithless. Well, we have to go back here in Israel's history. So this is a verse, this is Malachi 2, God says, in some of your verses, God hates divorce. Okay, so this is where God puts this in the context. The nation of Israel, the men, are leaving their wives of their youth to go marry pagan women. No cause, no reason, they just think the grass is greener on the other side. So this is, this is what is happening right here in Malachi chapter 2. So we have to go back, and maybe some people might say, well, what's the big deal? Hey, you know, we, we, we divorced today, no big deal. Well, it is a big deal because it goes, it goes against what God says. And so let's look here, Exodus 34. Exodus 34, Moses kind of gives a little example here of where, how the nation of Israel needs to be responded to the pagan nations. And read here in verse 10, Exodus 34 says this, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that will do for you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it becomes a snare in your midst. Circle the word snare. This is what God did not want the nation of Israel to do, to make any covenant, any arrangement with any of these nations, because it would be a snare. 
Now Moses clarifies this. We go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. He gets a little more specific here in what this means. He says this, You shall not intermarry with them, meaning the pagan nations that were around the nation of Israel, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And, and look at the underlying reason. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve their gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Now we see in the Old Testament several examples of this. Particularly if you look at Numbers chapter 25, you don't need to turn there. But Numbers 25 was a time in Israel's history where 24,000 men were killed in a plague because they were seduced and they followed Moabite women. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul references it, referenced that activity back in Numbers 25. So you can see that the nation of Israel, when they were seduced by women from the other nations, inhabitants, the pagans, God was not happy. Think of Samson in Judges 14 through 16. His wife Timnah and Delilah. If you remember the story of Samson, Samson told his dad, hey, you see that girl right there? I want her. Remember the story? And his dad's like, do, 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 you're a Nazarite. You no, I, I, I want her. And of course, we know the story of Delilah. And all they were out to destroy Samson because he was, he was of the nation of Israel. It did not work out well for Samson. We think of Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 11. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's, that's, that's a lot of groceries. That's a lot of Hallmark movies. But Solomon did not take the gods off the altars. And what does 1 Kings 11 tell us? Solomon's heart was pushed away from God, the true God. Because, again, God says, do not, do not make any covenant. Do not marry the nations, the women of the other nations. So right at this moment in time in Malachi chapter 2, the nation of Israel is not honoring marriage the way God intended it for them as a nation. So Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, here is where we'll begin. Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, underline that wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what has the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in the Spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her shall, shall, says to the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Now, when, there's two things here. We see wife, the wife of your youth. Understand, during this time in Israel's culture, there were prearranged marriages. So what that looks like is whether a couple before a child is born or when a child is born, two families say, you know what? I want my son to marry your daughter. So here is a payment, a dowry. Here is you know, some cattle. Here is a piece of land. And when they get old enough, when they get to be about 13, 14, 15 years old and they begin to marry, yeah, that's what happened back in the ancient Israel days, right? In old Hebrew culture. Then they would be married together. Can you imagine who you'd be married to if your parents wanted you to marry someone, if it was prearranged? I kind of like look, thinking back like, ugh, probably not going to fare out well for me as I think about my parents. But that's what happened here. The wife of their youth, these were people, these, the, your, their spouse was someone you knew from when you were young, when you were a toddler possibly. And the second statement we want to see here in, chapter, in verse 16 of Malachi 2 is this, this statement covers his garment with violence. 
So when a husband would divorce his wife here for no reason at all, there's a, there's a symbol here. For us that are married, there are certain symbols in, on our wedding day we remember. We remember the unity candle, right? When you come up and you bring, it symbolizes two becoming one. The sand being poured into a bottle, some do that. The three-chord strand. There's so many symbolisms in our culture and weddings. In this, in the, in the Jewish culture, here is, here is a picture, and this is what God is showing us here. A man, the husband, <clears throat> would take a garment and put it over his wife's shoulders and wrap her in that garment. And what that represented was he was giving her his love, his compassion, his protection, and his faithfulness. And so what God is saying here in contrary, he is saying this, when you do that, you are now covering her. If you divorce your wife, if you're going to go follow these women, and you're going to pursue them, what you're doing is you're putting and you're covering her with violence. That's how God is seeing this and viewing this. So the rest of the time this morning, we understand where, 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 where the Israelites are in Malachi 2. Now I want to turn this, and I want us to talk about marriage today in our culture. We know what, 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 what the Israelites are doing, what the men are doing here is wicked. It's wrong. God detests it. He hates it. We understand that. So now, how do we take application? What are some things we need to know today in our marriage? So I thought I'd start out this morning with just a few funny stories this morning. After 30 years spent watching television, a husband and wife said, let's do something exciting. The husband said, honey, let's go do some, something exciting tonight. And so the wife was excited. Okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to go out to eat? Are we going to go shop? What are we going to do? So she says, okay, great. What are we going to do? He said, well, I thought we would just switch chairs. That's the excitement for them. I heard it also said marriage is a relationship in which one person is always right and the other is the husband. Some of you are laughing. Some of, you are, all, some of the wives are like, that is right. A man and his wife were driving on the highway when a state trooper appeared in their mirror, and obviously he was pulled over. The state trooper asked for license and registration. The, the husband says, I'm sorry, officer, what seems to be the problem? The state trooper says, well, I clocked you on a radar at 75 miles an hour. The man said, there must be a mistake. I was only going 65. The wife chimes in and says, oh, Harold, you were going at least 80. <laughs> the state trooper says, I'm also citing you for having a taillight out. The husband says, but officer, I was not aware of that. And as the wife chimed in again, oh, Harold, you knew that's been out for months. <laughs> state trooper also says, well, I'm also now going to fine you for not wearing your seatbelt. And, and the husband says, well, sir, I, I took that off while you were approaching the car, as when the wife finally pipes up and says, honey, you never wear your seatbelt. Finally, the husband looks at the wife, can you just please keep your mouth shut? And the officer says to the, late, says to the wife, does he always talk to you this way? And the wife says, only when he is drunk. <laughs> so, he got in a lot of trouble that day. Got a lot of citations. So in today's world, marriage is taken casually. Divorce happens very easily and conveniently, and many Christians fall suit into that error. We're going to talk go through this idea in the church and how this works. But we understand we make a covenant before God and each other. Husbands and wives, do you know what our example is in marriage? There has, uh, we, Wayne and Barb Baker were here this morning, 55 years I think they celebrated their, their marriage. We look to people for longevity in marriage, and that's good when they're married 40, 50, 60 years. Anyone here married 60 years? Elmer and Fran, let's give them a hand. Good, all right, yeah. 60 years, 
60 years? 64. 64. That's great. See, we look at that and we're like, wow, this is amazing. But you know what? You know what our example should be? It's this the idea of how God and Christ are viewed in the marriage. So, for instance, when you look at Isaiah 54, 5, Isaiah says this, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the nation of Israel, God is a visual as a husband. And if we understand anything about Israel's history, particularly where they are in Malachi 2, God is not happy with Israel as a husband, is not happy with his bride. Guys, is there ever a time in our marriage that you are upset with your wife? Never, right? Good answer. You'll get lunch today. You think in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, the bride and bridegroom, Jesus as the bridegroom, the church, the bride, says this, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and ble- without blemish. That is going to be us, the bride, coming to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. I remember I was in a wedding. My, one of my friends from elementary school was getting married a few years back. And he's a pretty tough guy, you know, standing in the wedding stand. His wife comes to the door. He literally is standing there sobbing like a child. Just until, I just can't get control. And I'm just like, are you okay, man? I mean, is everything all right? I know he can cry, but he was like weeping. Why? Because he's seen his beautiful wife. Someday we are going to enter, and Jesus is going to call us forth as his bride. That husband and wife connection. So our focus is, how does How did God treat Israel? How does Jesus treat the church? And that's the example we have in our marriages. So our focus in our marriage is not if I'm happy or not. Our focus is not whether, well, I wish I, whatever they're doing, I want to have. And that's not necessarily bad. But our focus should solely be the example of God and how it relates to us, his creation. How he responds to Israel when they fell away and were, were adulterous in their relationship with their Heavenly Father. Well, us as the church, when we walk away from God, what does Jesus do for us? He's there for us. He loves us. He forgives us. As Paul told the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. When two Christians come together for marriage, we seek the Spirit of unity and peace because we are focused on Christ. You see, the world wants us to strive for happiness in everything. Think about it. Our jobs, our work, our relationships. Sounds good, doesn't it? But guess what? Guess what? Your relationships will let you down. Think about it. In our marriages, we're not perfect. Honey, I'm not perfect, just so you know that. We will get discouraged. We will get disappointed with our spouses. Right? It happens. We're not perfect creatures. However, when we strive for holiness, seeking out God's plan instead of happiness, God will take care of the issues in our relationships, and he will walk us through those moments. We think through the Old Testament. How many moments was it for God and Israel in times of constant conflict? Particularly right now, what we're reading in Malachi chapter 2, all the time. But what do we find out God at the end? God has always loved them, and he will care for them, and they are his people forever. How about Jesus in the church? John 10 tells us that you cannot be plucked out of your father's hand. Talk about forgiveness and long-suffering. I, I love 
what the psalmist says in Psalms 15.4. He says, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears in his own hurt and does not change. Even in hurt, even when your spouse hurts you, and he does or she does something, even in that hurt, what's it say there? Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not give up on us? I didn't hear that really too well. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not push us and push us to the side? See, for marriage, folks, for being married, you know, opposites attract, right? You know, you see the toilet paper. You like the toilet paper being pulled from the bottom. She likes it pulled from the top. What is going on? The toothpaste, you like coming from the bottom and everything going up to the top. I'm the guy who just takes it in the middle and squeezes it and it comes out. All those things, you sleep a certain way in bed, you snore, all these things. You do something, by one week we were married, I was like, what is going on here? Opposites attract. Do you remember the movie back in the 90s, Jerry Maguire? Do you remember all the, yeah. Do you remember this? This is the scene where Tom, oh, Tom Cruise says this. You complete me. And all the ladies, oh, my word, man. I wish my husband would say that. I wish Tom Cruise would say that to me, right? Not me, ladies, okay? But understand this, we, we get all emotional. That is such a beautiful phrase. But biblically speaking, it's a false statement. And here's why. I know you're thinking, oh, how dare you? But as couples, we're not complete in each other. We're complete in Christ. We're complete in Christ. And so when I die and pass away and Judy's spending all my millions, all right, you know, no, she'll be complete then. <laughs> That's a bad example. Um, but she, yeah, it was sorrowful that I'm gone. But, but guess what? Her completeness is in Christ. The, the, the Jesus responded to the Pharisees when they asked, will there be marriage in heaven? And Jesus responds, what? no, there is no marriage in heaven. Why? Because Jesus is our focus. He's the one that we're finally, we'll see our completeness in. So as a couple, we strive, as two Christian individuals, to strive to be complete in Christ. We complement each other. You and your spouse complement each other for the purpose of being complete in Christ. So guys, don't use Jerry Maguire's statement, you complete me. No, because we're complete in Christ. So as we think of marriage this morning, we think of what the nation of Israel is going through. They are, they are actually seeking out non-followers of God. They are seeking out reprobates. These men are leaving their wives for wicked women. Which leads us to the second point I want to talk about this morning. As we think about marriage, and we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. So let's read it together, and we'll kind of, I want to talk to some of the young people here today. I'm going to talk to the parents this morning. A very important principle here we want to gather. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That word there in the Greek means this, pretty much this, to be mismatched. To be wrongly matched. When you're unequally yoked, you're mismatched. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, Paul, if we continue reading, starts picking pieces from the Old Testament. Look what he says here in verse 16. These are all, all reminders of what God told the nation of Israel about foreign women and men. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, as God says. Here's where it comes from the Old Testament. I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. See, God was setting up for the nation of Israel. Listen, you do not want to be unequally yoked. The only reason you're not marrying foreign women is because you will be seduced by them and you will stop worshiping me and you will follow their gods. Well, guess what? In the New Testament is the same concept. Young people, look at me right now. Do not be unequally yoked together with that individual you want to marry. Do not be. You got me? Do not marry someone who is not a believer. Look at this picture here. This is what an unsaved couple looks like. You have a camel and you have a donkey trying to plow a field. It's not going to work. I want to use Judy as an example here in a minute. So Judy, come up here just to the stage here. And here's, this is the picture I want you to see here. Okay. If I represent the Christian in the couple, in the relationship, and I try, and my wife is representing someone who is not a believer, and I'm trying to pull her up on stage. I've got to try, okay, I've got to get her to my level. I've got to try, okay, I've got to get her to church. I've got to, okay, we've got to read the Bible. We've got, we got to get our kids in this. Okay, it's a lot of effort. But how much effort is it going to be for her to yank me? Okay, stop. <laughs> how, how much effort is it going to be? Thanks, hon. How much effort is it be for the unsaved spouse to pull you down on that level? And that's exactly what happens. So young people, please heed. My, I, I know what you're thinking, but you don't know. He's so handsome. He, she's beautiful. You just don't understand. You know, he's going to college for this. He, his parents are doctors. So what? This is what you look like in the faith. Unequally yoked together. Young people, don't lower your standards for that spouse that God has for you. Don't say, yep, I'm, I'm 30 years old, I gotta pick, up. I'll take you, whatever. Don't ever, because what you think about it, marriage is the earliest institution. Genesis chapter 3, God ordained it before the fall. One man, one woman for life. Be cautious in who you choose. Do not be unequally yoked together. Because as that example, you are going to be easily pulled down to the level. And then you're going to live apathetically. Eh, going to church. Eh, we don't really need to do that. And now you are following suit with their lifestyle. Young people, don't do it. Please. Now, parents, let me speak to you for a moment. Do not approve or support or endorse your child who brings home an unsaved guy. Don't. You are just setting up this picture of being unequally yoked. But he's, he, the moms, you know, but he is just, he's dreamy. And she's beautiful. They got a good job. Don't do it. Talk to individuals who have done it who were Christians and made the mistake of marrying someone who wasn't a believer, they'll tell you, take a step back and think about it. Because life here in, the Christian, in, in a marriage should be two people complementing each other to be complete in Christ. And we wonder, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, I wonder why this isn't working. Because we violated 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be. Young people, 
don't be unequally yoked together. Please don't lower your standards. Okay, young people? You got it? All right, so you bring that person home to your parents. Well, how do you know they're a Christian? Well, I hope you can ask some key questions. Hey, where do you go to church? And if they say they don't go to church, okay, we're done, bye. Simple as that. Hey, when did you come to Jesus? When did you get saved? And uh, sometimes we, get, we buy into the statement, well, I am a Christian. We probably have all heard that. But the Bible gives us some clear instruction of seeing their fruit. And so parents, as you, someone says that, okay, I'm going to see here how this guy or this girl lives. Does their fruit reflect that? I always told my girls, I tell Megan, the guy that you choose, we are taking a trip to Canada. And we are going to do a wilderness hike. If he comes back, he's good to go. If he's stuck on an island, then he's up there by himself and he'll get home however so. All right, dads, particularly with our daughters, you can be strict. That's your girl. That's your baby girl. Don't let some wingnut whack job come up and marry your, marry your, marry your daughter and he's, he's, he's blowing smoke. Let's, be, let's make sure we don't lower our standards, okay? So as we talk about this idea of marriage and we talk about the nation of Israel here, we think about our culture. Well, marriage vows are broken all the time, aren't they? We hear the, 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 the word divorce. And I want to speak tenderly on this situation, be gentle in my view, and look at a practical application to this. You see, in our culture, divorce is easy, it's accessible, and it's appealing. Actually, just like a, a man in, in Dubai who sent his wife a text, third text, saying, you did not make my tea, I'm divorcing you. Yeah. Well, he is Muslim, so in the Islamic belief, when you let your wife know, of course, ladies cannot divorce in that faith, when you let your wife know three times that she did something wrong and you're divorcing her, the divorce is final via text. She fought it, went to the Islamic court, and they, they upheld the man's decision because it's law, and that lady, because she did not make tea for her husband, was legally divorced via a text. That's, a, that's very easy to do. That's amazing. That's crazy. In the Jewish faith, is a little bit, I mean, it's, it's a little different. A man can just sign a certificate of divorce for whatever. Eh, you burnt my breakfast, you did this, you did that. Certificate of divorce, once she receives that certificate, the divorce is final. As easy as that. So Christians, how do we live differently? And I know there's, 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 there's situations, we're going to talk about those situations in divorce, particularly in the Christian faith. But how do we Christians live differently in the world where it makes the, the marriage vows just so easy to get out of? Now let me say this just from my heart, church. And I'm standing here this morning in a room with individuals that have gone through divorce. Now, many of you have been divorced before you were Christians, maybe after you were Christians. Understand this, God forgives you, move on. He has grace and mercy, whatever your situation is. Understand this, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Understand this, church, that you are not a second-class citizen because you're divorced. Many churches, you would, many people would feel that way in a church. I hope you don't feel that way at Faith Bible Church because that is not true. God brings us through situations, whether we made good decisions or bad decisions in the area of divorce, but God is a God of grace and mercy. And through those situations, God gives you opportunities to help people not go through the, the, the place that you went, or helps you, helps you counsel individuals to get through those situations. So I want you to understand where our heart is this morning as we tackle this issue. 
I believe there's, there's two issues in the Bible that give permission for a, a divorce. It's not commanded. It's not encouraged. It's not the first thing God says to do, but it's permissible, and we'll, t- we'll talk about that. Remember, Malachi 2, God says he hates divorce. Scripture does not contradict itself. God says this. So we need to turn to Matthew chapter 19 this morning as we look at a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And we're going we're to learn a little bit about culture, about the Jewish culture and what this meant, in, the divorce meant in Jewish culture. And how we, look at it, how we look at it today in our world. Matthew chapter 19, we're going to look and just walk through this conversation. Verse 3. Now before I say that, understand the Pharisees were constantly always trying to trick Jesus. They're always trying to trick Jesus. He says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested Jesus by asking him this, Is it lawful to divorce one man's wife for any cause? Now I want you to circle or underline the word, the phrase, any cause. That's very key here. We're going to talk about what any cause means. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God allowed Moses to institute a certificate of divorce for individuals who were involved with sexual immorality who violated their marriage covenant. However, through the years of Israel's history, by the time Jesus came onto the scene in the first century, it was called a divorce of any cause. So by the time Jesus gets this question, Israel was divorcing their spouses for anything. It was not just for sexual immorality anymore. Now it was for just like the illustration of the guy in Dubai. You didn't make make my tea. You burnt this. You did this. Any cause divorce. And this is where Jesus is at when he gets this question So let's see how Jesus responds to this trick question. Look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Okay, so let me just stop there. Sometimes, I did it the first service. We had some teenagers in the first service. Okay, so young people, because in the great passage of scripture that confirms this. So I talked about getting married. I want to make sure I clarify. So if you are a guy, you are going to marry a girl who is a biological woman. Amen? Okay. If you are a lady... You're going to marry a guy who is a biological male. Amen? We're all on the same page on that? Okay, it's it's amazing. I had to step back and explain things in our culture. It's a shame, but we all understand that. Man, male and female, he said. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, this comes from Genesis chapter 2, verbatim. It comes right from the first Wedding with Adam and Eve. This is what God says. It was before the fall. This is God's perfect plan for marriage. One man, one woman for life. They ask him another question, trying to trick him. Look at verse 7. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So there it is. So Moses commanded this. Again, and we look at Deuteronomy 24. It's because of sexual immorality. The violation of their marital covenant. But now, when Jesus gets the questions, they're getting divorced for anything. Now, here is what Jesus' response was. He said to them, Because your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I want to just say it here. In the area of of what we feel here, in the area of, 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 of divorce, when the individual who has violated their marital covenant and they continue to violate, and they continue to practice illicit sexual acts, and they continue to practice adultery, that person is considered hard-hearted. The first 
point we want to go to in an area when someone violates us, we want to bring them together. Because God is about restoration. He's about forgiveness. And that's where we want to be. So when someone violates that, the first thing we go to is not, okay, you're done, I'm out, get out. The first thing we do, okay, let's get right with God. Let's be complete in God, and let's see if we can work this out. That's how we as pastors here counsel in those areas. However, there are times when that individual walks their own way and they're hard-hearted. And that's what Jesus says. Because of an individual is hard-hearted, because they will continue to follow in their sin, that is when a certificate of divorce can be given. It's permissible. Again, not given Jesus. It's the first, first button you hit when something happens. No, but it's permissible when that person has walked and they have gone their own way and are doing their own thing sexually in their sin. He closes it in verse 9. He says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus here makes it clear when you understand the culture of the Jewish faith, when someone violates it and their hearts are hardened, they walk away and they continue to practice that illicit sexual activity. That and only then can a certificate, certificate of divorce be met. So sexual immorality is one of those permissible reasons that a, a marriage covenant can be, via, can be dismissed. Again, not after a lot of counsel in dealing with a situation. Number two is this, abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 15. Verse 15 says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That there separate, that word there in the Greek means to divorce or to leave permanently. Okay, God's saying, listen, if that unbelieving spouse that you have married and they want to divorce you, and they want to walk away from you, and they're going to divorce, you let it go. It says there you are not enslaved any longer to that covenant. You are now free because the unbelieving spouse has chosen to do that. So we see the, the, the act of immorality, adultery, fornication, connecting with a prostitute. That, that, word, that word pornea has a lot of illustrations on what that sexual immorality means. When an individual has chosen to walk that path, seeks no restoration, has walked away from their faith, then and only then can we give a certificate of divorce according to what Jesus says. And then Paul says abandonment. When a wife or a husband leaves you and your family and seeks another life somewhere else. Now we hear the word separation in other contexts. The wife separated for some time, the husband separated for some time. This is a temporary separation. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses this from the area of sexual, uh, sexual intimacy where a husband and wife are separated for some time to pray and deal with issues, but then to come back together, together again so they are not tempted to, to defy their marital covenant. However, in separation I want to refer to, there's times as pastors we have to deal with really interesting situations and, and issues. It doesn't all fit in a cookie-cutter box. And I want to just address, many as pastors, we are very adamant when a woman is being physically and sexually abused that it is important that that woman gets away from the home. You are our sister in Christ, and we do not want harm to you for some time so we can get you help and get your husband help. I read an article this week in Christianity Today and I don't, usually don't read articles from Christianity Today. It's more of a liberal bent on things, but this was a good article. And it said that for the past 60 years, evangelical fundamental churches have pushed the issue of domestic abuse under the carpet, under the premise of Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, submit to your wife. 
That's absolutely insane. You talk about taking it past the scripture out of context, that's exactly what that is. Women, if you are in that situation, please seek help. Please come to your pastors. We do not want you living in fear. We do not want you living afraid to lock yourself in your room because of fearing what your husband's going to do because you messed up dinner, because you did this. Men, look at me for a moment. If you are that guy, you are a coward. If you are that guy, you are a coward. Now I'm going to give you this straight up. If you, next time you want to smack your wife around, I live right over there. Come smack on me. Seriously. And if that doesn't work, Kyle, I'll send you, Kyle, stand up. You can go smack on him. All right? You can go smack on him. All right? All right? You can go smack on him. That's absolutely insane. And so, men, we do not hide under Ephesians chapter 5. You submit to me. You submit to me. That is out of context. In fact, let's look at Ephesians 5.25. What does God tell us to do? Husbands, love your wives. In the area of smacking them around, I don't see where that's love. Going on hitting girls, that's absolutely insane. You need help, you need to repent, and you need to get psychological help. You need spiritual help, but you need to ask for forgiveness. And we need to move on and learn to love your wife and to care for her and treat her in a way that she is not scared of you. So as we conclude this morning, I want us to think about this area of marriage. How men, men, Some of us are in, in that situation of abuse. Some of us are in the situation of separation. Some of us are in the situation of divorce and we're, we're starting a new life and we have, we're, we're starting to, to walk with God and we're starting to find the ways he wants us to serve him in our marriage. So here's two things, two applications I want us to see this morning as we close out Malachi chapter 2. If the nation of Israel would have done this back then, they would be in a different situation. Number one is this. One, be committed to God in your marriage. Be committed to God in your marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us what we're supposed to do. There is the example. Wives submit, husbands love. God, the Father, God the Son, gives us that example. In In the nature of the Trinity, the Son, the Spirit, submits to the Father. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, He they love their children, us. There is an example of what we need to do in our marriages. Submit to one another and love one another. We are to submit and do that same very thing to God. And number two is this, as we close. Be committed to your spouse in your marriage. Be committed to your spouse. Look what it said to Malachi 2, verse 15. It says, so guard yourselves and your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Be committed to your spouse. Be committed. Love them. Care for them. Be faithful to them. Church, let's not let Satan get into our homes, into our marriages. He loves this. He loves the fact that Christians don't hold their covenants together. He loves the fact that, the fact that guys, uh, uh, husbands and wives are fighting and arguing and want to break. He loves it. He is just, he's, he's just glorying in it. Let's not give him that. Let's commit ourselves to God and let's commit ourselves to our spouses so we can have godly marriages that are out to stay connected to God and that he is the center of our marriages. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we had together.
God, and direct us. Help us, Father, as we navigate through our, our marriages. Even as a homer in France, 64 years, every day they're probably working through issues. And that's what marriage is about, the keeping you in the forefront of our mind. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for the church and how we can encourage one another. We, we need to say sometimes hard things as we learn to love one another and care for one another because we're brothers and sisters, and that's what we do. We care for, for each other. Help us to see the needs of people in our ministry that need help, that need encouragement. May we reach out to them. Again, thank you so much for this lesson in Malachi 2 that we need to stay focused on our marriages as we serve you in your precious name. Amen. Let's all stand up. I count one thing The same God that never fails Will not fail me now You won't fail me now In the waiting The same God is never late Is working all things out Working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will for all. Yes, I will. Have a great afternoon.